The early April rainstorms soaked the parched earthen tongue of a land dried out from winter like the whole world had fallen off the wagon. It drummed against the ancient gnarled trees looming overhead and drip-dropped onto a tiny wooden bird carved atop the walking stick. A small boy eyed that wooden bird, ducking and bobbing and weaving, as the thick, cloying mud sucked at his boots with every step. The jug-eared squire said that the bird had winked at him the other day. The boy knew that this was ridiculous and the older one was teasing him, but he felt it only sensible to remain vigilant. The walking stick was clutched firmly in the hand of a rather severe-looking old woman, enveloped in dull gray fullered wool. The abbess had a face that told a thousand stories. Deep-veined wrinkles spread across it like a tapestry of spider webs, while her lips vanished into the unforgiving determination of her set jaw. The jug-eared squire said that she had once withered a man into dust with a single, merciless glower. The boy knew that this was also ridiculous and the older one was teasing him again, but redoubled his vigilance nonetheless. Just beyond the dour edifice of the abbess, the boy's eyes caught on the rich, ruby redness of the wealthy lady's hood, like a beacon in the murky forest gloom. The oiled cloth covered most of her coiffure, still somehow miraculously intact despite the indignities of travel, and caressed against her high, lightly rouged cheekbones with each delicate step. Her lips were not pinched, but pursed in her exasperation, as though the weather could be charmed with a plump and pretty pout. Next to her walked her husband. Directly behind him, clearly assaulting them both with his finest sales pitch, came the merchant. The whole of his round moon face was writ large with desperate charisma. From the glint in the beady eyes that so obviously failed to sparkle, to the bared crescent of his mouth, which never quite turned up at the ends, to the way he poked his elbow with arrogant familiarity to emphasize his points. The husband's nose twitched like a weasel with every one of the merchant's overloud guffaws. The unlikely collection journeyed together as a matter of circumstance and chance. Most folks moved through this strange and savage land in clustered groups. There was safety in numbers, or so they believed. They met in Dovishdane, that last haven of civilization where so many hopeful pilgrims embarked, pursuing suffering in the name of some esoteric and undefinable knowing. The small band of travelers moved through the colossal forest like flies flitting about a roasted suckling pig. Insignificant, fleeting, irritating. By early afternoon, the rain had died down, eventually settling into an unpleasant mist that bled through even the hardiest fabrics, seeping through the skin and condensating along the bones. As the afternoon waned, wisps of fog began to prowl along the immense roots, which half-burrowed into the ground like knotted serpents. The day, filtered sickly and bleak by the misty rain and dense canopy, began to tinge with the murky lavender of twilight. 
The enormous trunks, their splintered bark mottled with silver grays and deep browns and vivid mossy greens, crept closer and closer together. At long last, they entered a small glade. Overhead, the vast branches wove together to form a high cathedral ceiling and afforded shelter. It was a popular waypoint for pilgrims, and the only one this deep into the central forest, so it was not surprising to find other travelers within already making camp. Although not so many as one might expect. There were few who braved the journey this early in the pilgrimage season. The healer was the first to greet the newcomers. He was a pale, slight man who moved with nervous quickness. His features were bland and unremarkable, save for his eyes, which were overly large and, while not vibrant or significant in color, possessed a sincerity and gentleness which made you trust him almost instantly. The woodsman was hard at work building a fire in the open stone pit which had been constructed where the overhead shelter was most concentrated. Night was fully upon them by the time the camp was set. The woodsman had at long last been successful, and they all eventually gathered around the flames, backs turned towards the inky darkness and whatever nocturnal creatures roamed within it. Dinner had been rushed, brown bread with dried fruit and jerky, but it had taken the painful edge off their hunger. The warmth of the fire restored some of their good humor, and the merchant's generous wineskin restored still more. Soon the group was gossiping, joking, and swapping stories, talking over one another in overlapping conversations and injecting into others with little quips and one-liners. It was the social circus which captivates adults and alienates children, and, true to form, the boy was soon annoyingly bored. He drifted away from the fire, though he was careful not to stray too far from the safety of the group, and soon found a sturdy stick some remnant from one of the primordial behemoths that lurked above them, which possessed the particular length and ideal springiness for imaginary swordplay. He grasped his prize by the knobbly hilt and held it aloft, testing its weight and balance with the gravity of a trained blacksmith. He gave it a test swing, and another, then flicked his wrist into a jab, fainted towards the right, and was soon consumed by his intense make-believe melee. The boy wasn't entirely sure how long he'd been thrashing that particular tree, only that he was definitely winning against the deciduous scoundrel, when the abbess's voice cut through his martial reverie like a serrated blade. You would be wise to show the trees more respect, boy. That last part was coded in caustic emphasis. She had not moved from her spot by the fire, nor did she raise her voice, but it had still been enough to silence the social circus he'd escaped from, and he realized that all eyes were on the two of them. The boy gulped. I'm not doing any harm. They're just trees, ma'am. The abbess's eyes bored into him, as did the carved wooden eyes of the bird atop the walking stick still clutched in one clawed hand. Just trees. Do you know the story of this forest? You are not the first to dismiss our sylvan brethren, but we reap what we sow, child, and such arrogance will be broken on the wheel. 
The boy shivered and drew closer to the fire. The tension lay heavily on the air, but still no one spoke. Baron Hanneberg was not an evil man by all accounts. He was simply eager. Eager to make an impression, eager to be impressive. And his tragedy was that he was so very unremarkable. There was absolutely nothing noteworthy about him. Aside from his inheritance, which was prodigious and unexpected, arriving as it did due to the sad passing of his elderly father and the unfortunate death of his older brother at a devastatingly early age. He had no other family, and his sheer mediocrity had prevented any of the real substantial social connections which would have been a comfort at such times. So the Baron was left alone in his mundanity. It might have been a blessing to avoid the fortune-hunting jackals that so often come sniffing around such easy prey, except that he would have preferred that. He didn't care about the money, he just wanted the company. This forest was not always the wild, predatory place that surrounds us now. It was once a place of culture and refinement. There was city and society and innovation and enlightenment and all the gilded imperfections and flagrant aristocracy which accompanies that which we deem civilization. Can you picture it, boy? The clattering of hooves on the stone streets, a wash and lantern light, as the lonely baron gazes longingly into the dazzling radiance of bountiful dinners and resplendent galas and intimate receptions, just visible through windows, thrown open doorways, or gated garden walls. The black wilderness around the boy grew feral against the old abbess's conjurings, and the full weight of the knight's menace fell on him. He was very small, and there were many things he could not do. An interesting man would have turned his solitary suffering into some insightful piece of aspirational wisdom. But Baron Henneberg was not an interesting man. Not in his person, nor in his logic. He could not comprehend the intangibility of what draws people in and bonds them together. Instead, he saw only the concrete and the direct. He saw the houses, not the homes. So that is what he focused on. The Baron dedicated himself to building a new house. An impressive house. A remarkable house. He spent a fortune on architects and craftsmen. He consulted experts in any field he felt might make his house more magnificent. He became obsessed. His house would be a masterpiece. Everyone would talk about it. Talk about him. People would come from all over just to see it. And then he became fanatical. It didn't just become his life, it became his soul. 
His lavish ambition required an awful lot of raw material. All around the Henneberg estate, there was the rasping of saws and chopping of axes and resounding crash of slaughtered trees. The sound resonated for miles. Nearby villages muttered resentfully but could not afford to offend a wealthy patron. But there were other, older, more primal things that slept in these lands. Things which were awoken by the Baron's careless din. Things which were much less willing to forgive than the villagers. Look around you, boy. It does not do to underestimate nature. These trees have been here long before us. Been here when mankind itself was nothing but dust and clay. And they will be here long after us. They will be here when mankind itself returns to that dust and clay. The boy knew that this was ridiculous and the aged crone was taunting him. But the dread was building in his rapidly beating heart nonetheless. And deep within that heart, he was certain there was something out there. Watching them. After weeks and weeks of pillaging the land, the Baron did finally get his wish. Everyone started talking about him. Or rather, they started talking about the sudden, deafening silence of his villa, of the terrified workers that fled his grounds babbling incoherently and refusing to ever return, of the hair-raising, piercing screams that sliced through the night and severed the dreams of any who dared to sleep within a few miles of the estate. They did not immediately know what had happened to the Baron. When the villagers finally worked up the courage to investigate the grounds, there was no sign of violence or hint of struggle. It was laid with all the trappings of an ordinary day cut short. Half-eaten breakfast in the hall, tools strewn about as though casually set down for a moment's respite. There was even laundry hanging in the breeze. The Baron was nowhere to be found. They feasted on the titillating mystery of it all for days. Theories abounded, scandals were stirred, people were fascinated. Poor man. He was more notable in his absence than he could ever hope to be with his presence. Within days of his disappearance, the estate was soon crawling with thrill-seekers, like ants. And then, one of them was found brutally dismembered and splattered across the solarium. Another was found torn in two, the bottom half-speared topsy-turvy onto the marble trident of a mermaid fountain while the head and parts of the spine were found floating in the water below. The rest appeared to have been eaten. Fear gripped the villages and the people petitioned for aid. 
The city sent heavily armed knights, and that's when they discovered what had happened to the Baron. The boy's skin crawled. Was that rustling behind him? His breath shortened. He couldn't quite make it out. What was that? He knew something was moving out there. The forest's vengeance erupted from the trees in thunderous, roaring fury. A juggernaut of matted fur and vicious claws and razor tusks. The knights did not stand a chance against it. One tightened fist toppled them like toy soldiers. The other scooped one up and devoured him, armor and all like a chestnut still in the shell. Its immense muscles rippled through the massacre, and with every shift, the decomposing skin which hung from it in patches like sails undulated revoltingly. The smell that accompanied this monstrous beast was indescribable. Like the sulfurous smell of death and the fetid odor of wild things and a cloying, fungal stench of putrefaction. It snuffled and fed on the corpses of the knights, its bony, bifurcated antlers bobbing and weaving. And there, right at the apex of its hideous skull, in some grotesque comedy, sat a too small feathered cap. The Baron's feathered cap. The villagers fled in panic. The estate was closed off. They posted armed guards to prevent trespassers from going in and prayed that whatever was once the Baron did not come out. The carcass of that palatial house was left to rot collapse, decay. The forest reclaimed its bones, and now there's nothing left of Baron Henneberg's soul. A twig snapped, and the boy jumped. Now there's nothing left of any of them. No villagers, or villages, or city, or society. Nothing but this. This forest still remains, and they say it still guards here, craving flesh, seeking retribution. Her words dropped like stones into the intense quiet of the camp. The rustling had grown closer. The boy felt the foul breath of the guardian beast upon his neck. It was behind him, in the woods waiting. The boy wanted to turn around, but the boy did not want to look. He knew what he would see. A musty smell filled his nostrils in that agonizing moment of indecision. And then its claws dug into the boy's shoulders. Its fearsome roar assaulted his ears. He was dragged backwards, flailing wildly and shrieking in pure terror. He knew the bite was coming, knew one rancid tusk would plunge into his shoulder, felt its pain when the roar abruptly turned into laughter, and he looked up into the smug face of the jug-eared squire. The relief left him jelly-legged and quivering. The hollow space the terror left quickly filled with embarrassment and anger. 
The boy shrugged away from the squire. He could hear the others admonishing the older boy half-heartedly, their amusement weakening its impact. Hot tears prickled in his eyes and he stalked away towards his bedroom. He crawled in and curled up, turned away from the group at the fire. The social circus slowly returned, diminished somewhat by the late hour, and the boy softened to the lullaby of muted conversation. Eventually, he dozed off. Those around the fire heard a resounding, echoing roar. (laughs) 